You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called the portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Welcome back everybody to Always Picking Electric Securities. It's your host Alex Marku on November 26, 2021 and I hope everyone had an amazing Thanksgiving. On today's episode, I'm going to give you a couple stock stories I've had from the past and then I'll let you know what the plays will be for next week's Apes Portfolio. For the sports segment, I'll be recapping the picks I gave out and then I'll be risking up to $100 worth of this gambling segment's account to create new bet slips over the weekend and I'll let you know exactly what they are. And then to finish off the episode, I'll be giving you a lesson into credit cards. And by the end of this episode, you should know exactly what goes into building a credit score. Hope you enjoy the episode. Financial disclaimer. Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Welcome back, apes and retail investors that think alike. On today's investing segment, I'm going to talk about what my game plan is for next week regarding the apes portfolio. And then after that, I'm going to share three stock stories that I've had in the past. One that was my first big winner, the two stocks that single-handedly drove my account to 100% gain, and then of course, the two stocks that I missed out on because I sold too early. But before I get into that, let me give a quick update on the apes portfolio. So, it seems that the Black Friday deals weren't just for shopping, but it was for the stock market and crypto markets as well, because it is red everywhere. And if you were to read most of MSM's articles, it would let you know that it's because of the African COVID variant that just came to light. And by MSM, I mean mainstream media. But I don't really pay attention too much to what their articles say, because you never really know the agenda that they've got. After all, these MSM agencies are owned by large institutions. This bleeding market has affected everyone's portfolio, mine included. Last time I talked to you guys, the portfolio was valued at about $1,142. Now, it's valued at $1,064, which is sitting at about 6.5%. So since I last talked to you guys, I've lost about 8% of this portfolio's value. But that's okay, because this ape's portfolio is meant to handle volatility swings. This ape's portfolio is still a young little seedling, we're just waiting for a rainfall while staying resilient in this dry patch. But mark my words, as soon as we get any little bit of rain to get this seed growing, we're going to burst through any concrete that's above our floor and we're going to shoot straight up like any flower should grow. And as long as no one plucks us, we're going to grow as tall as any tree out there. But right now during our infancy, we're being tested. And all we're going to be doing is holding on strong until we get that one wet season. And that's all we need. One good wet season to start growing straight up. So now for this Apes portfolio, aside from just the GameStop stock we've got, 
and the two call options, what else am I going to be adding in it? Well, this week I did give three possible plays, and I did say how I'm going to look into Chegg and ComputerShare as possible buy opportunities. I gave you a reason why I'm not going to be looking into Overstock, and it's just because it's too pricey for this portfolio. Now along with the Chegg and ComputerShare plays, I'm also looking at buying just straight up stock into Super League Gaming. I know I already have an option call on this, but I figured why not have some shares as well. Especially since it's just about a $3 stock, I figure why not add it to this portfolio. So what my possible game plan is for next week is to buy at least 2 to 4 shares of Chegg depending on the price range. And then for computer share, I plan on buying the ADR version, so CMSQY. That way I don't have to pay that $50 foreign transaction fee. And I'm looking to buy anywhere between 5 and 10 shares. For Super League Gaming, since it's such a low price point, between $3 and $3.50, I'm looking to buy about 10 to 25 shares of that. Now don't worry, I'm not going to be making any buys early in the week, so come Monday, I'll let you know exactly how many shares of what I'm going to buy, and if it's going to come on Wednesday, or if it's going to come on a Friday. This is just to let you know what I fully intend to do with this portfolio in the upcoming week. Also, another key date coming up is going to be the next episode, on Monday because that's when I'm going to be depositing $100 into this portfolio. It's going to be the first deposit in. Remember how I said I'm not going to be trying to time the market with this portfolio? So that's what I'm doing. I initially tried to time the market with $1,000 at a time, but now at the end of every month, I'm going to be depositing $100, and I'm going to be allocating it within the three segments however I choose to do so. Because I don't really have a need to put extra money for the gambling segments, I'm most likely going to be putting $50 into the crypto segment and $50 into the stock segment. And by adding a fixed amount of money at the end of every single month into this portfolio, at some point, I will have more deposited money than I initially started with it. I'm essentially using my moving average method that I explained on the episode earlier this week on Monday. So since I've got about $236 of cash and I'm probably going to be adding $50 to the account on Monday of next week, I should have about $280 to play around with in the stock market, which is perfect given that we just had a Black Friday sale and maybe Cyber Monday will follow up with even greater discounts. Let's just keep our fingers crossed. So now that you know the plays I intend to make for this Apes portfolio next week, let me talk about some stock stories I've had in the past. And what better way to start off a story than telling you the first big winner I've had, which was Kodak. And I'm not talking about Kodak Black the Rapper, I'm talking about the Kodak that produces cameras and is responsible for photography stuff. And it was this company that popped my cherry for the first real big winner. Because up until that point, I was making small minimal gains in my day trading and swing trading. And by minimal gains, I mean I would make $20 max if I was lucky, but I could lose anywhere between $5 to $50 by just being impatient. I remember the day like it was yesterday. It was July 28, 2020. And I remember on Yahoo Finance, I saw a certain ticker was trending on a top gainers list. What I decided to do was buy 10 shares of this stock at a price point of $9.60. Now the day I bought it, I initially bought it in the morning, and I saw it drop all the way below $8. So my first thought was, oh great, here we go again. You see, I have this method of trying to find out which stocks are trending for the day by going on Yahoo Finance and then filtering it out for which tickers are the top gainers, even small caps included, and then making sure that the price is at least greater than $0.10 cents a share. By filtering in so the price is greater than $0.10 cents a share, 
It gets rid of all those dumb over-the-counter exchange penny stocks that says blow up 10,000% and you can't even trade on them. Regardless, that's how I found the Kodak stock in the first place, because it was a top gainer for that day, and I must have bought in at the top for that day at least, and I was rewarded really nicely the next day, without really knowing what I was getting myself into. You see, I have a method before I buy these stocks on the top gainers list. If it looks like it's trending upwards, I research the stock and I read one quick article to see if there's any significant news. For Kodak's case, there was an article that they recently had a $500 million loan given out to them. And it was so that they could start producing generic drugs. Nothing COVID related, but very basic generic drugs. A digital photography company to start producing generic drugs. And they had a $500 million loan given to them by the government. Regardless, I figured, oh, this might look like good news, so let's just buy in. The next day, this stock opened at around $12. I was so stoked to see that open because I saw the stock go from $9.60 to just below $8 yesterday. And for it to open up at about $12, it meant I was up pretty nice already. For the next hour and a half that morning, I saw Kodak go from $12 and hit a max peak of $60. In a spam of 30 minutes, it went from $20 to $60. And then it started saying something about how there were trading halts and all this stuff. Once the trading halts came in, since I was a noob, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I put in a sell limit so that it could sell at a price point of $42 something. The reason is because every time the trading activity was reopening, this stock was plummeting down. It went from $60 to $52 after the next halt, and then it went from $52 to $30. These swings were so crazy, I decided to try and put a limit sell for at least 6 shares. I sold my first 6 shares for about $31.90, so I made back my initial profit and I had a little bit extra on top. I figured I would leave 4 shares in there just as extra profit in case this thing ramps up again. I wound up holding the shares for a couple days, but it never wound up ramping up again and instead started falling off a cliff. So I sold the 4 remaining shares at around $18.91. Still pretty good considering I sold 4 shares at a profit of 2x. And then I sold 6 shares at a profit of about 3x. But the one thing I saw that day in my account was a $500 swing. And that's the first time I was introduced to real volatility in the market. And it was such an exhilarating feeling. I wound up profiting just about $170 with that trade and all it took was just the span of a week. So for me, I started seeing the real potential of a stock market after that day. So my first big winner will always be Kodak. And just like everyone's first, we always remember something about it. For this stock in particular, for this stock in particular, I just remember buying it sub $10, and then the next day before 8.30am and the trading halt started, I saw it hit a max of $60. The fact that someone could have made 6 times their money within the span of one day is insane. And I like trying to find opportunities like that out there in the market. And my next story was me finding the perfect opportunity. Literally dream case scenario, because Kodak only lasted one day. The next two stocks I found a couple months later had a little bull run that lasted about a month. And to give you a visual representation of the state of mind I was in for that whole month, you know the meme of when you nut and she keeps on sucking? All of those memes put together in one compilation, that's the feeling I had for an entire month, and I'm about to tell you why. The two companies that single-handedly pulled my portfolio over 100% gain within one month were ARCT and the other stock ticker was KNDI. 
Now aside from the stock tickers, I don't know anything else about these companies, and I never learned anything else about them. The only thing that got my attention on these two stocks was the same method I used on my Yahoo Finance for top gainers, but this time I reversed it and used it for top losers. I noticed that one day ARCT fell, and it lost $30 worth of stock valuation. This stock fell from $60 to $30. And in my mind, I was thinking, dude, what if I just buy this right now, and it goes back to $60? I'll already have returned 2x of my money. And then the next day, I saw the stock ticker was slowly starting to creep back up. So I bought into this stock November 9, 2020, 10 shares at about $37.51. My philosophy was to wait until about $60 and then see what movement we're working with. Now literally two days later, I was using this same method on stocks top losers, and this stock ticker KNDI came up there. This was a stock that was below $7, and on November 11th, I bought 23 shares at $6.21, because I figured, hey, this thing just lost a lot of money, let's see if it can go at least a $10 a share. Little did I know that on those two days, I purchased my first tickets to free casino money from here on out at least in terms of my Robinhood account. Because what happened that following month was surreal. In terms of my Robinhood account, I only ever put in about $1,500. And my risk management method up until that point was to just buy 10 shares of something if it was at least below $50. And if it was somewhere between $20 and $10, I could afford to buy 20 shares of it. So this was the method I was imploring, and this was exactly the method I used on these two stocks. Now how I said that I only ever put in $1,500 in my Robinhood account, at that time, my account was valued at about $2,000 and I had a bunch of other stocks. I honestly had a portfolio of about 30 stocks, so it was impossible for me to truly keep track of it. I would only look at them and then sell them whenever I saw that I had a certain amount of loss or gain. But back to the stocks that really drove my portfolio to a new level. Because after I purchased these stocks, for the next month, ARCT started gaining $5 to $10 every single day almost, and it rarely had red days. The days that it was red, it was only down like 2 to 3%, and the days it was green, it was 5 to 10% or more. And on the other side of the fence, the candy stock I had was also doing the exact same thing. It had more green days than red days for that whole month, and the red days were very minimal, and the green days would be either routinely be a 5% gain, or would just blow up to an extreme number. These stocks wound up at tremendous peaks, way far above the price targets I even had for them, because ARCT reached the high of $129 at some point early in December. And Candy was doing the same exact thing. It reached the high of $17.45 sometime early December as well. I was initially just hoping for ARCT to reach 60, and for Candy to reach 10. But looking back on that month, the most fun thing about it was that every single day my Robinhood account was gaining anywhere between $100 and $300. There were certain days where all of my other stocks were red, and because these two were up so much, I still gained money. It was hysterical to see these two literally drive my portfolio to new heights. When everything was said and done, I had about $4,000 in the account. Up until that point, I'd only been trading for a little bit over a year. So this was my first real big winner. You see, I considered Kodak to be a big winner of mine because that was my first true big winner. But these two, especially ARCT, that was my first real winner. Because I wound up selling 10 shares of the ARCT stock at $100.12. So 
so I got pretty close to timing that peak of 129. I also played around a little bit with it for the next couple days after selling my shares and wound up profiting some more money off of it. Because at the end of the day, I realized I have free casino money to play with here. I put in $1,500 in this account and now it's 4,000. So now I've got a lot of extra money I can just mess around with. Now for the candy stock, I wound up selling the 23 shares at around $11.05, but I wasn't able to time the peak as well. But I'm still not complaining because my price target was $10 and I sold this $1.05 over it. I wound up profiting about $626 and $113 from the two trades I just told you. I wound up day trading the stocks for the next week or two and then eventually they started just declining downhill so I just let go of them. Within that play I still made myself some nice decent money but it's because of that casino money I was telling you about. I felt like I was invincible because I didn't have to worry about losing money. I had an extra $2,000 if you even want to call it that I could just throw around. I wasn't going to because a certain risk management strategy got me there in the first place. But you can see why someone in my position, and there are a lot of people in my position I hope, aren't really afraid of risk. Because you have to get your account to a point where you don't have to worry about it. And the only way you can get your account there is by experimenting with the market and seeing what works and what doesn't. Another way to get there is to learn some tough lessons. And this next story is just that. Because these two stocks are stocks that I sold early because of an emotional reason. And one lesson I learned from that is to never trade again just off of pure emotion. Because these were purely emotional trades. And I regret it because when I bought into these stocks, I was a full believer that these were going to have a serious bull run. And I was right but I sold because of pure emotion. The two stocks I'm talking about go by the tickers of Riot and Mara. So Riot is R-I-O-T, quite literally like the word, and Mara is just M-A-R-A. Those two tickers are blockchain companies, and that's about all I know about them. Another thing I know about them is that I left some serious gains out there on the table for someone else to claim when it should've and could've been mine. You see, I bought these two stocks in late December. I had five shares of Riot at an average cost of about $16.50, and then I had about 10 shares of Mara at an average price point of $10.53. I wound up selling both of these stocks on January 20th of 2021. The reason being, I got onto Wall Street bets. And I'm not gonna lie, I read a lot of the stuff there and said, F it. Let's sell everything in my portfolio and start diving into these three or four stocks that everyone's mentioning. Now I wound up escaping that late January frenzy and not losing a lot of money. I probably just stay neutral with my account, but that's the thing that sucks. Because had I just stuck with my picks and not ran into Wall Street bets, aside from the fact that I'm still very thankful I ran into them because of the GameStop DD and all the true information that's out there about this company and what's really happening behind the scenes, it was the first emotional trading lesson I learned in the stock market. Because I sold these stocks for no other reason than just to jump on ship with another stock. And looking back on it now, I can say that. But in the moment, I didn't think of it as that. In the moment, I thought, oh, I'm going to sell these off as a small gain anyways, and I'm going to get on something even better. Because my little pea brain sold the riot shares, even though it was just five, at a price point of $18.50, so I made about $2 per trade there, and then I sold the Mara stock at $20.18. So you could argue, well it's not too bad that you made double your money on that stock, 
But wait until I tell you that for the next three weeks, these stocks went on a huge bull run as I had seen coming, and they hit new all-time highs, just to leave me feeling in a crushed position, knowing full well I could have seen some of these gains and been enjoying the bull run myself as well. Because both of these stocks hit their all-time highs somewhere in mid-February. The stock Riot I had, which was only 5 shares worth, hit an all-time high of $79.50. So that means my 5 shares would have been valued at roughly $400. And I only ever put in $75 for this trade. I made $10 off of this trade because I sold it off. I left a lot of money out there on the table. And Mara, which is even worse for me, because I had 10 shares of that, hit an all-time high of $57.75 in February. And I'm not counting the all-time high that it recently hit earlier this November at $83.40. So yeah, it does kind of suck that I was right on these picks, and I sold them just to get in on some Wall Street Bets hype. I wound up profiting on those Wall Street Bets stocks, but at the end of the day, it would have been nice to stick with my own intuition. And I let emotion get the better of me during that week, and that was one lesson I learned, which is why I decided to share this story. I'm hoping that by at least sharing some stories of my previous stock experiences, that maybe some of you, when you're placed in certain situations, can come back to the story you heard and remember what I went through, and maybe remember the ending that I had. And then you can kind of adjust yourself in the middle of the moment. Also, I figured it'd be nice to share some stock picking stories every now and then, rather than just always throwing out financial data and numbers at you. So every now and then for the investing segment, you're not going to have to hear about balance sheets and income statements and certain numbers like this. Instead, you might get a story of a time I had a tragic stock experience, a great one, or just in general, a lesson I learned from the whole trading experience. Because this podcast isn't being created just to grow a portfolio to an amazing amount, it's also being created to teach you how to invest. And I'm under the assumption that everyone listening is a beginning investor. And if you're listening to this as someone who's not a beginning investor, I'm hoping that I can at least teach you something in the ways that I view stock picking or through the stories I tell. Maybe even through the process I go through in creating a portfolio, you can start seeing the market in a different way. Whatever it is, if you learn anything new off of this podcast, I will view it as a successful episode. So to wrap up the investing segment, I'm going to give a quick little recap into what my plans are for next week. I'm looking into buying somewhere between 2 to 4 shares of Chegg. I'm also looking to buy about 5 to 10 shares of Computer Share, the ADR stock. And then for Super League Gaming, I might buy anywhere between 10 to 25 shares for this account. Well, I hope you enjoyed my little stock stories, and if you ever find yourself in a similar situation, I hope you make it out on top. Until next time, tape out. Alright, welcome back my friendly degenerates, and anyone that just likes to listen to this sports gambling segment. Before I give out my weekend picks, I want to recap how I did for the UEFA round robin, and how the turkey day picks went. So, starting off with the bet I placed on Wednesday, which was the UEFA picks, I went 5 for 8, and by risking $28, I came out on top profiting $5.50. The bet picks that helped win this slate were Inter Milano to win by at least 2 goals, Liverpool, Manchester City, and RB Leipzig to straight up win, and then I also had Real Madrid to at least win by 2 goals. 
The three bets that didn't win, unfortunately, was Ajax to win by two goals, and I was watching this game, they had a goal at the very end of the game taken away because they were just barely off sides. I was pretty devastated, not gonna lie. But then I also had Borussia Dortmund and Atletico Madrid to straight up get their wins, and they lost. My next pick was yesterday during Thanksgiving, which had a lot of the football games and then three college basketball games. I did pretty bad with this slate and wound up only going 3 for 8 unfortunately. And by risking the $28, I wound up losing $16.90 on this round robin bet. The only three picks that won for me were the Raiders and Cowboys game to go over 51 points, the Bears and Lions game to go under 42 points, and then the Bills to win by at least 7. Everything else lost. So that means the Bears weren't able to win by 3, the Cowboys straight up lost and didn't cover their minus 7 point spread, and then all of my college basketball games lost, so Kansas, Alabama, and USC weren't able to cover, and Alabama actually got upset. And I had a round robin that I created for today on Friday, but when I made my NBA picks, I was accidentally looking at the wrong date. So I was giving you certain teams that weren't playing. Luckily, three of the NBA teams I gave you, which were the Bulls, Bucks, and Lakers, actually are playing today. But I did pick the Heat as well, and the Heat aren't playing today. I realize that's my mistake, and I'll do my best not to repeat it again. Nonetheless, I'll recap this bet slip on the next episode, because there's some games that are going to be playing later on today, and I'm going to be airing the episode before they end. So for this upcoming weekend, I've taken a good look at some of the sports, and what I really like this weekend is college football, obviously some more soccer from the Bundesliga, La Liga, and Premier League, and then of course, I'll be sticking with the NFL for Sunday. So without wasting any more time, let me hop into my strategy for this weekend. I'll be creating three round robins, and then I'll be creating four unique parlays, each of which are three team picks or four team pick parlays. So let me get right into my college football round robin. I'm going to be choosing Ohio State to cover a 7 point spread against Michigan. I'm also going to be choosing Army to straight up win as an underdog against Liberty. I believe Georgia can beat Georgia Tech by at least 36 points. I like Alabama to cover their spread and win by at least 21 against Auburn. I also like Texas A&M to win by at least 7 against LSU. I'm going to be picking Michigan State's money line because they're an underdog against Penn State. I also like a heavy favorite in Houston to win by at least 33 points against Connecticut. And then I'm going to be finishing off the bet with a nightcap by picking UCLA to win by at least 7 against California. For a quick recap of that bet, I have Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama, Texas A&M, Houston, and UCLA to cover their spreads, and then I'm going to be throwing in Army and Michigan State as Moneyline underdogs. Now I'm going to be moving on to my Mixed Soccer League's round robin. In the Bundesliga, I like Wolfsburg to beat Dortmund, and I like Köln to beat Borussia Mönchengladbach back at home. In the English Premier League, I'm going to stick with one game, and that's Arsenal to win by at least two against Newcastle. And then for the La Liga, I'm going to be picking four games. I like Barcelona finding a way to win Villarreal, even though they're in enemy territory. And then I'm going to go with my real picks again. I like Real Sociodad to straight up win against Espanyol. I like Real Betis to straight up win against Levante. And then I like Real Madrid to win against Sevilla. The last pick I'm going to have in this round robin to make it at least eight picks comes from League One, which is in the Paris area. I like Nice to at least beat the Mets by two goals. So for a quick recap on those picks, I like Wolfsburg, Köln, Barcelona, Real Sociedad, Real Betis, and Real Madrid as money line. And then I like Nice and Arsenal to win by at least two goals. Next, I'll be moving on to the NFL Dogs round robin. 
Remember, I like to believe that any given Sunday, anyone can win. And that's why I create these NFL Dogs Round Robins, which so far have been profitable for me. So my pick for the NFL Dogs this slate is the Titans to beat the Patriots, the Jets to beat the Texans, the Jags to beat the Falcons, the Dolphins to beat the Panthers, Steelers to beat the Bengals, the Vikings to beat the Niners, the Packers to beat the Rams, and then the Browns to beat the Ravens during Sunday Night Football. So by making these three round robins, one being with college football, the other being with a mix of some soccer leagues, and the other one being some underdogs for Sunday football, I'll be risking about $84 with these three round robins if I continue to do what I've done in the past by placing at least a $1 wager per 28 parlays that are created. But I wanted to make Sunday a little bit more interesting than just rooting for some underdogs. So I decided to make four parlays as well, and I'm going to be placing $4 risk on each one. This way, I'm going to be placing $16 on these four parlays. Together, the $84 risk on my round robins and the $16 on the parlays is going to be $100 total dollars risk for the gambling segment this weekend. I'm curious to see how much money I can try and earn off of $100 risked. I'll definitely let you know on Monday. So the first parlay I have is the Eagles, Bucks, and Chargers to just straight up win. No covering the spreads, no nothing. I'm just parlaying all three of them to get a win, and I'm risking $4 on that. My second parlay is a themed one. I decided to pick the unders on all of the divisional matchups. So that means the Eagles and Giants game I put under 45.5 points. The Steelers and Bengals game I have under 45. The Browns and Ravens game I have under 47. And then the Chargers and Broncos game I have under 48 points. I'm going to be parlaying all four of those selections and I'm risking $4 on that. My third parlay for the round robin slate are the three underdogs I'm most confident with which are the Dolphins, Packers, and Steelers. So I'm going to be putting those three together and risking $4 on it. If this one wins, I will be super happy, and I hope to tell you why. And then because I felt like it would be lame to just root for some unders, I decided to make a fourth parlay of overs. So I chose four games I think are going to be high scoring. I think the Jets and Texans game can go at least over 44.5 points. The Vikings and Niners can go over 49 points. The Panthers and Dolphins can go over 42 points, and I think the Rams and Packers game is going to be a shootout and be at least over 47 points. So those will be the four parlays I'm going to be creating. Remember, the difference in these parlays and round robins is that for the parlays, I need every single bet to hit. With these round robins that I'm creating, I'm specifically setting it up to only create parlays of two. So the reality is, with these round robins, I'm rooting to get most of the picks right, but I can still afford to be wrong. Whereas with these parlays, if I'm wrong on even one pick, the whole bet loses. So whether you decide that you like the picks I gave you or you want to go against them, I hope you find a way to make money off of this segment. And until next time, you degenerates, ape out. Hello class, today's lesson is going to be on credit cards. And by the end of today's lesson, you're going to know exactly what goes into making up a credit score. And I'm hoping that you'll be able to see the importance of using a credit card while also being responsible with it. So before I get into the lesson, I wanted to do things a little bit backwards today. 
Typically, I would give you the information out and then give you my two cents or kind of sprinkle in my story and two cents in between giving you the factual information. This time, I want to do it reversed. I want to let you know what I think about credit cards and how I use them. And then after I give you my two cents on credit cards, I'll dive into the lesson. So what do I think of a credit card? Well, a credit card is a debt instrument. So you're expected to accrue debt while maintaining this kind of instrument. Now, why do I say instrument? Well, because I believe that in the financial market, every little nuance you've got out there, services, credit cards, loans, stocks, derivatives, options, stuff like that, every little one of those things is an instrument. Some of those are debt instruments, while others are asset creating instruments. So when you sign up yourself for a credit card, you're expected to get debt with this. Now, is this a good or a bad thing? It's both. Because even though this is a debt instrument, this is the easiest way you can show creditors and lenders out there in the market that you're able to pay off your debt. And in terms of a credit card, it's honestly level one to getting into these debt instruments. Because you're not going to be able to go in for a loan until you've proven that you can at least pay off some credit cards. Am I right? So credit cards are the foundational level of learning how to control your debt and learning how to manage your expenses. A credit card is a way to show the world that you're responsible with your money. And if you're not, trust me, banks will make sure that they take out every penny they can before you have to default. And from a famous quote I once saw lingering around, if you owe the bank $20, that's your problem. If the bank owes someone $20 million, that's their problem. So the bank's never gonna have a problem with you owing them money which is where credit cards can become a trap for some people if you misuse it even within your first year. So I'm hoping from today's lesson, not only will you wanna make sure to always have a credit card on you, but you'll know how to use it efficiently, not just use it like it's free monopoly money, and then when the bill time comes due, you start sweating and you're wondering if you should make only the minimum payment. Cause let me tell you, that is not the route you should go. If you're looking into getting a credit card, the best advice I can give you is to treat it like a debit card. Honestly, don't swipe the card for something that you don't have in your checking account. Because at some point in the future, which is normally a month out, your statement balance is gonna be due. And if you start spending more than you have in your checking account, once you have to pay these bills, you're gonna really hate the fact that you have to make a minimum payment and you're gonna be charged interest on something that you shouldn't be charged. But it's just because you weren't sure entirely how this debt instrument was structured and no one ever bothered to tell you. They just told you to sign up for this credit card and to spend and then pay off your payment. And if you can't make the full statement payment, just do the minimum one. And when you get a chance, pay off the rest. Well, that's what the banks want you to do. So you can give them more money for literally spending credit. And let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, when institutions and banks do this kind of credit spending, on a 100 to 1,000 times grander scheme, and it goes unnoticed almost every day in these financial markets because they just swap the money around. It's a crazy system we live in, ladies and gentlemen, which is why I'm trying to make sure you survive in this so you don't get yourself stuck in a debt hole. So now let me explain to you in the best way I can how a credit card score is computed and the little things you can do to raise your credit card score by doing nothing more special than just spending money how you normally would have and paying your statement balance in full. So for starters on credit card score, the highest possible credit card score you can get is 850. 
Now why it's important to have a good credit score is because you want to go out there to the market and borrow money. A lender is going to look at your credit score. They're going to see how reliable you are on paying back your money. And if it's a low score, they're not going to trust you with it. Or they might trust you with it and give you a really crazy interest percentage. To the point where you might have to start reconsidering getting that loan just because you don't want to put yourself in that hole. Well, having a good credit score can fix these issues. And it can save you money in the long run, especially when you're going in for house loans and things that are more serious that require way more money than just monthly payments on credit cards. So now that you know the highest score possible is 850, how do we get there? Well, think of it as a grading rubric, and I'm about to break down the weighted scores for how you can get to this 850 number. So out of the scores calculation, 35% of the score is based on payment history. So this means that 35% of that 850 number is based on how you make your payments. Which is why I go back to always spend how much money you have on that credit card to an equal amount that you at least have in that checking account. Treat that credit card like you would a debit card. If you don't have enough money in that checking, pretend that this credit card is going to decline all of your transactions until you get your next payday. And I'll give you a really good example right now of why you should do that. So let me give a quick example scenario. Let's say that you got yourself a credit card that has a $1,000 credit limit and it has a 24% APR and the minimum payment per month has to be at least $100 or the statement balance, whichever one is lower. Now what the APR is, put in simple terms, is just the annual percentage interest rate for your credit card. So what you do is you take your APR and you divide it by 12 and you know exactly how much you're going to be charged monthly for any balances that you didn't pay. So when you have your statement balance due, if you don't pay the full statement balance, that leftover balance for next month's bill is going to be charged interest on it. And the interest that's going to be charged is whatever your APR is divided by 12 because that's the one month cycle it was in. Now, it's going to get even worse if you continue to hold that money in there even longer for the upcoming month because then you're being charged interest twice on the same leftover balance. These are the serious loopholes you can get caught in, and banks won't give a shit. They will notify you as soon as you're damn near default. They'll make sure to take every penny they can out of you before they make it a serious concern. Because remember, it's your problem if you owe the bank money, not the other way around. So with the example I just gave you, let's do a quick one-year case study. Let's say, in an unrealistic world, that two people manage to spend $500 exactly each month for a year straight. One person decides that they're going to pay their statement balance in full every single month. Now the other person is only going to be paying the minimum balance. Because to them, they see it as a win if you can buy something for $500, and then at the end of the month, you only have to pay $100 for it. So they're going to keep this mindset going for one year and let's see where they end up. So a year passes and as you can expect, the first person has zero credit card debt. Because every time they had a 500 statement balance due, they paid it in full. So they paid the full $500. So they never had to worry about the interest rate and they never had to worry about the APR. I've never made a minimum payment because I've never had to. I've been fortunate and I'm not going to speak for everyone out there. If you have to make a minimum payment, what I advise you do is try to raise the minimum payment to the absolute maximum you can afford and then when you get paid again, if you can, try to pay off the remaining balance before the upcoming monthly statement. 
because if you can get rid of that leftover balance, you're going to be charged less interest over time in the long run. And if you can eventually work your way to making that number zero, so you only ever have to keep paying your statement balance in your account, your credit score is going to start going up without you even doing anything. But let me give you the awful scenario that the second guy would have put himself in because he only believed he had to pay the minimum statement balance for a full year. So after that first month of spending, he spent $500 and when his bill was due, he only paid off 100 of it. So this meant there was $400 left over in that account. Now for the following month's statement balance, what's going to happen is it's going to charge 2% interest on that $400. And it's just going to add that as extra money you have to pay. Where did I get the 2% from? Well, I made my 24% number easy for a reason. I divided that by 12 and I got 2%. So 2% is what the monthly interest is going to be on this credit card. So the following month comes up and he spends $500 again. And now he still decides it's smart to only pay $100 off of it. Well, in a perfect world, he would only have to owe $800 left. But because he had that $400 left over in his account, it actually earned interest. And now you owe $808. So you owe eight more dollars originally than you would have if you just paid off your statement balance. And the money sitting in this account keeps getting charged at 2% each month you don't pay it off. So let's say he continues to do this. By the end of the year, if he was really irresponsible and didn't give a shit, he would owe the bank or whoever facilitates this debt instrument $5,364. Now if we were to take what he should owe on 0% interest, it would only be $4,800. So that's a difference of $564. The interest of $564 might seem insane, and it is because he essentially owes another month of payment after a whole year of just making minimum payments. So if you think about it and you don't make the full statement payment balance, after a full year, you will literally have to pay 13 months worth of bills instead of 12. And then you'd still have to be paying the current payments as you're making $500 expenses. So you're only gonna be digging yourself in a further hole if you can't cover these charges. And then to make matters even worse, 35% of your credit score is associated to these payment histories. So if you get yourself in huge debt right off the bat, even within a year of making an accidental mistake, you can seriously hinder your credit score because the number one factor going into it is the payment history. So before you start reading into these nuanced stuff of how to raise your credit card using the credit utilization, how about you just worry about making the statement balance payment first? And then once you get the hang of that, you can do the next thing that I'm about to talk about. Because the second biggest weighing factor on your credit score is something called credit utilization. And 30% of your credit card score is rated on this. Now what credit card utilization is, is your total debt divided by the total available credit at any given moment the banks decide to do a snapshot. And what you can typically read on the internet is that 30% credit utilization is what bank statements are looking for to boost your credit score higher than if it was any other number. This 30% is just a ballpark number. So if I use the example from above where we had a $1,000 limit and we were spending $500 a month, our credit utilization would be 50%. Now that's only if you'd pay off your statement balances in full, because if you wouldn't, eventually that credit card utilization score can go over 100%. And what do I mean by that? 
Well, remember that situation where the guy was only paying the minimum statement balance? In his third month, he would have roughly $1,200 in debt in his account. And if you divide that by his total available credit, which is just 1000 you would notice there's a huge red flag. He's at 120%, meaning he has more debt than credit. And this can be a huge red flag for lenders, and it'll only push your credit score down since 30% of your credit score is determined off of this utilization rating. So the best way I can describe the credit card utilization, because I've looked into it and I remember exactly what I needed to do, but it's honestly a lot of dumb work to try and keep track of. And honestly, like unless you're trying to go for that 800 or 850 credit score, you really shouldn't mess with it. But I'll still explain it so you get the general idea of what goes behind this. So what happens is banks typically take a snapshot of all of your credit card debt and everything like that once or twice a month. And when they take this snapshot, they find out how much debt you have at that given moment and then they divide it by the total available credit you have. This way, they get something called a credit utilization rating. So people say to try and keep this credit utilization rating somewhere around the 20 to 30% range if you wanna boost your credit score at a faster accelerating rate than if this credit utilization was let's say 50 or 10%. Now, if you didn't get what I just said, it's okay. Just let it breeze over your head. Because I'm able to keep my credit score, and I'm not trying to brag right now, but easily above 700, and all I ever really focus on is paying off my statement balance in full. That, and make sure you never get rid of your oldest credit card. Now, if I really wanted to be a sweaty and get my credit score to 750 or 800 range, what I would do is I would make sure that my credit utilization hovers around 30%. And I can't time when the banks are going to make a snapshot, but I can tell you the method I would implore to do this because I thought about it and I did it for about two months before I realized how stupid it was. So I'll be using myself as an example so you can get an idea of this story. I happen to have two credit cards. Let's say one of them has a credit line of $1,000 and the other has a credit line of $2,000. So let's say I go on about my own business as usual every single month and I just spend my regular money. Now, when the bank so happens to take this snapshot, in a perfect world, if I had $900 total of debt, my credit utilization score would be 30% because $900 of my debt divided by the $3,000 of total available credit would be 30%. Now I'd be a maniac if I went on with my life trying to only spend $900 worth of stuff every single month. So I'm gonna let you know what to do if you wanna make sure to round off this credit utilization score to 30% when you don't even know that the bank will take a snapshot. So what I would do is I would find out all of your total available credit. This means take every single credit card you have and look at the credit line. Add all of these up and then times that by 0.3. Whatever number that happens to be is the magic number you wanna hit in your total debt so that you can get a 30% credit card utilization rating. So now let's say I'm at the beginning of my week and I happen to spend $1,000 early on. Well, I know the bank is gonna take a snapshot of this at some point, and I don't want it to be $1,000 because my magic number is 900. What I'm gonna do because I'm such a nerd about it is I'm gonna log into my credit card online account and I'm gonna pay off exactly $100 worth of my credit right then and there on the spot. That way it shows that my total debt in the account is $900. So now every time I spend a certain amount over 900, I'm gonna instantly pay it off so that the number is around 900. 
because I can't time when the bank is going to take the snapshot, I can control my end of the deal by keeping the debt at the magic number. So this is what you would do if you wanted to be sweaty and raise your credit card at a faster rate. But make sure by the time your statement balance is due that you still pay it off in full. Because remember, 35% of your credit score is also relying on the payment history. So now that you know what makes up more than half of your credit card score, let's go talk about the other nuanced stuff. Remember how I said to keep hold on that oldest credit card you have? The reason is because 15% of your credit card score, and this takes into account of the oldest card you have, the newest card you have, and the average age of all the accounts. So the older your accounts are, the higher the score you get on this. Why? Because to lenders, it shows that you've been in this debt market for a while and you understand how to cover your costs. I still have the very first credit card I started with, and I didn't know about this credit card history link until I did some research about it today. But knowing this now, I'm going to be keeping the very first credit card that I ever opened. Because this is only going to help make the average of my accounts look like it's older. So now there's still 20% worth of this score that is unaccounted for. And 10% of that is determined on something called the credit mix. What this means is the banks just look at what other debt instruments you have. And if you have others, it helps your credit score. For whatever dumb reason, the more debt instruments you have is actually accounted for and considered good for your credit score. But there's a low value associated to it. So don't go out there thinking if you just start applying for loans, you can start raising your credit score. But for this credit mix, it means if you have other debt instruments, like a car loan, other credit cards, student loans, or a mortgage, then you're most likely going to be helping your credit score and raising it a little bit. And then the last factor weighing into your credit score is just new credit cards. So this is the number of new credit accounts that are recently opened and the number of applications that are currently sent to lenders. 10% of your score is affected by this, so this is what I meant by you can't just apply for loans and credit cards all over the place to raise your score, because it can be counteracted with this 10%. But if you're not applying for credit cards or loans or anything like that, essentially you get this 10% for free, if you think about it, because it shows to lenders that you're not willing to take on more credit, so they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt and give you the 10% of the score for this. So now I'm hoping you know that the highest you can get a credit card score is 850, and 35% of that score is attributed to the payment history, while 30% of the score is attributed to your credit utilization rating, and then you've got 15% of the score being how long you've held these credit cards for, and then the final 20% is split in half at 10 apiece each, where you've got different kinds of debt instruments accounting for 10% of your score, and then the other 10% is the amount of new accounts and new apps that you've sent out. Together, this totals an obvious 100%. But what does this mean? Well, I looked online to see what bad, fair, good, and excellent credit scores are considered. And although these numbers vary lender to lender, it can give you a good idea for what kind of credit score you can try and aim for. So a bad credit score is anything under 629 points, which is anything below 74%. Remember, 65% of your score is based off of payment history and the utilization. And then if you're not even signing up for new accounts, you get that 10%. So if you're doing your part, and you're probably not gonna get the full 30% of the utilization, but let's just say you do, you already have 75% right there. So you can see why it's bad to just have a 629 score. Now, a fair score is considered anything between 630 and 689. 
so this is 75 to 81 percent. A good score is anything between 690 and 719, which is anywhere between 81 and 84 and a half percent. And then an excellent score is anything over 84 and a half percent, which is anything between 720 and 850. Now remember, these numbers vary, so sometimes an excellent score can be something like 750 instead. But overall, I hope you get the gist of the kind of percentages you need to have. And you can see how it's not too hard to get most of them from that payment history. The credit utilization stuff is just a bunch of jargon if you want to really boost that credit score. But I can tell you right now with full confidence how I told you that my credit score is easily kept above the 720 mark. And I recently checked to see what my score was, and as of November 17, 2021, it was ranked at 741. Now, I wouldn't just tell you that I recently checked my credit score without adding some other additional information that I think is valuable. And what that information is, is my interpretation for when I think banks do their snapshots. Because I was noticing a small little pattern, at least in the Chase My Journey credit card score shower, and it was that almost the third week on a Wednesday is when these snapshots were occurring. It wasn't every single month, but for the most part, it was the third week of that Wednesday. And if it happened to miss the third week of that Wednesday, the snapshot was either at the beginning of the month or at the end of the month. Now, I don't know if that information helps you out there, but at least it can give you an idea for when banks do their snapshot. And it's typically near the end of the month. I'm guessing the ones that happen at the beginning of the month had something to do with the fiscal policies. And I've been able to get my credit score to 740 or above 720 without really ever caring about my credit utilization. And I'm not going to lie to you, my credit utilization has probably been severe shit, especially at the beginning of this year. Because there were times when I was almost maxed out on both of my credit cards, which meant my utilization score was probably above 70%. And that should be a huge red flag to some lenders, because you can't assume that I would pay 70% of my debt, but I still did, because at the end of the day, it was on my statement balance, and I'm a huge believer in always paying off your statement balance in full. If you can't pay it off in full, try and pay as much as you can, and if you can, avoid that minimum payment section. If you ever have to make that minimum payment, do it, but then as soon as you get any kind of cash flows, make sure you pay it off because I don't want you to be charged interest on just simple expenses that you pay to survive and stay alive. Because a credit card can be a trap for some, but it can also be financial freedom and opportunity and open doors that you wouldn't think would have been opened had you not had a good credit score. So I hope you were able to take something away from this lesson, and I hope it wasn't just all boring credit card talk. I truly think that a credit card is the first form of investment you can make in yourself if you're not ready to get out there into the stock market, crypto market, or any other markets. Because when you get a credit card, you're putting yourself out there in the real market. Lenders are going to finally put you out there on the financial map. And if you can make your payments, soon credit cards are going to be sent to you and your house. And you might get some pretty nice deals. Well class, if you've made it this far in the lesson, I just want to say thank you, love you, and until next time, ape out.
Don't spend more than what you don't have. 